for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast about people with people. As usual, I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. If this is your first time checking out the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so happy to have you. Those People is a show with people about people where we explore all the labels that others give us and that we give ourselves. Every episode, we sit down with a different guests and we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S words, really. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people who are involved. So if you love it, we love you to go and go tell a friend. If you hate it, we hate you, and please kindly shut the fuck up forever. I'm just kidding about that last <laughs> part, but if you do hate the show for real, please shoot me a note at mitchgaines at gmail.com. Tell me what you hated. We might do a little bit better next time. Maybe we won't. As always, I also want to take a quick second to remind all of you who do love the show, or just some of the people that we've had on the show, to please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people discover the show. Platforms we're now currently on include Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, my personal favorite here in Boston, Radio Public, and a whole bunch more. If you happen to be a Google or an Apple listener and you like the show, it means a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, but only if you like the show. Save the hate takes for Twitter, where again you can find me at Mitch Gaines, that's Gaines with a Y because I'm a little bit gay, G-A-Y-N-S. My guest today is somebody I'm super excited to sit down with. It is Bree Kidman, who is the very first ever non-binary person to run for U.S. Senate. It's a huge fucking deal here on a show that's all about identity. They're also an activist, a former public defender in their home state of Maine, and currently seeking the Democratic Party nomination with the backing of a whole bunch of the far left in 2020. They see currently occupied by the increasingly controversial Susan Collins. Uh, so I'm excited to talk with Bree and get a sense of what the race is like and enter their name into this in the first place. So without much further ado... Welcome to the show, Brie. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks. Um, so I'm actually a current, um, a current public defender. Oh, um, okay. we'll sorry. My apologies. I, I, I always feel like everybody I'm like quits their working. day job when they run for an office, and I'm like, oh, like most normal people who run for office don't really have that luxury, do they? No, I feel like a lot of people don't uh, continue to work while they're running for office. But um, you know, I mean, I think most people who run for for senate at least um, are not middle class like working people. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so that I, I guess I well I'll back up several steps then because I want to kind of uh, eventually get to the the essence of the question like so how did we end up here because <laughs> like you said you're you're a very atypical candidate if you will uh, but one that enthuses me quite a bit so uh, I guess I start off uh, every interview in the same two places first and foremost just uh, for the sake of everybody feeling safe and secure I ask everybody the same question I need a conversational safe word so the way that works very similar to a sexual safe word anytime I ask a weird uncomfortable question or we're getting too far deep into something you don't feel like you want to talk about you say that safe word we go in another direction if you need to use that safe word like 20 times within the course of one session we should probably cut this out and stop talking to each other because shit got really weird <laughs> all right fair is there one that you've used like previously oh everybody has their own i will say the most common today is pineapple i do not know why that is but that has been used by multiple people damn um pineapple that's exotic uh, for a safe word, but I'm going to go with red. I think that that's like a a good standard issue consent one that most people will recognize. Somebody is very familiar with the community. Okay, I like it. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Uh, the other question I always ask to start off with is like, just, I guess to kind of set the tone here, like, where are you from? Like, uh, obviously we want to talk about how we got to kind of where we're at now, but where are you from originally? So that's like a complicated and kind of loaded question in Maine. Um, Maine is um, a place where like, if you weren't born here and not just you, but like your parents and your grandparents weren't born here, you're from away. Um, and Do they just call um, it away? Some, yeah, no, from away is like a, it's a term of art here. <laughs> okay. um, and the thing is like, so I was born in Rhode Island. I was raised in Rhode Island. However, my dad and his parents uh, were born in Maine, and my Maine lineage traces back to, like, the 1700s. Um, oh, wow. So um, the person that I spoke with last night was like, well, you know, if you have ties to the Merrill family, then you're definitely, like, a Mainer. Um, and I was like, even though I went to school in Rhode Island. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, so I have the lineage to be a Mainer. Um, and, you know, I certainly came here a lot growing up. It was always, like, my happy place, my, um, my kind of escape from my day-to-day. Because um, my grandmother was here, so my aunts were here or are here, um, and um, my grandfather's here as well. And so it's been like, you know, home is where the heart is. So it is my home in that sense, and, I, and I've lived here for some time. But uh, I was born and raised in Rhode Island, technically, which I feel like is important to some folks in Maine. That's fair. Uh, when did when did you move up to Maine? I moved here uh, permanently in 2012, beginning of 2012. Oh, okay. So you've been back for a good seven years now. Uh, and yeah. I, I guess what is uh, it's weird because I'm from New England myself. I'm from here in Massachusetts, but Massachusetts, uh, you know, much to the chagrin of people elsewhere in New England, and to the hatred of everyone else in the country. Like we are, just, we are the coastal elitist that people make fun of. You know what I mean? And so it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm from New England, but like I don't dare venture to like dirty little Rhode Island, or like maybe I'll take a beach trip up to Maine and go up to York and play some skee ball or something. But like that's the extent of it all. Uh, so what is Rhode Island like? Like what is childhood? Rhode Island like? Um, Thailand, Rhode Island was, uh, I think the word that I'm using is chaotic. Um, <laughs> I had a, you know, I had a lot going on as a kid. My parents are, my dad has been a police officer in East Providence for 32 years. Um, and my mom, uh, was in school and then she was a teacher and, um, and they separated, they divorced when I was like nine or 10. Um, but before that, like my dad had a brain tumor and there was also like, um, some stuff with the police department where he testified that was a lot and, um, traumatic. And, um, I was very sick as a young child. Um, so I had Kawasaki's disease at age seven. Um, and I went from being like this tiny little ballerina to being, um, you know, I was like 200 pounds, uh, as a seven year old and some of it went away, but mostly I was just a very, large person from then on out <laughs> so wait if, if you don't mind me backing up a step there what is kawasaki's disease because i've never i've never heard of that i've heard yeah, kawasaki like, like a, the bike i've never heard of kawasaki disease yeah. it's an autoimmune disease um and um basically it's, it's vascular inflammation hmm. um and it's pretty serious it i needed a, a gamma globulin transfusion i was in the hospital for a while i was on prednisone for a long time like oh, wow. um it was, it was pretty scary. And especially like just following my dad, um, you know, having a brain tumor and just like, it was, it was a lot for one family. I was going to um, say, it sounds like most of your family was like in a hospital for the better part of 12 years, either like taking care of somebody um, or they themselves. It was all like 93 to 94. Oh, wow. Um, so it was Back like, insult. Jeez. 
Okay. Yeah. It was rugged. Um, so, um, you know, following that, I, uh, you know, I was pretty depressed, I guess, because I had been through a lot, even though I didn't really have a sense of that at the time. And I was bullied a lot as a kid. And I learned pretty early that I was queer. Um, like I figured it out uh, when I saw the movie Titanic, so I must have been about ten. <laughs> um, okay. Ten or eleven, and um, and I told one friend, and uh, by the end of that school day, everybody in my class knew. You know, stuff like getting stuff written about me on desks and um, on lockers, and just like having people say really mean stuff to me about me. And I couldn't really get any support from the administration. Their response was basically like, be less of a target. Um, (laughs) Why do you dress so queer? What the fuck? Right. (laughs) Um, And like, at that time I identified as bisexual. Like I didn't really have the language for like queer or trans or, you know, non-binary. I just knew that I liked boys and girls and I didn't really know that there was another option. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, why can't I have them all? <laughs> I like pretty people. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, I went through high school, like, kind of struggling with that. And um, my junior year of high school, I studied abroad um, for the first semester. And um, while I was studying abroad, I uh, was abducted out of a bar. I was uh, taken out of a bar by some other people who took me to a B location. Uh you know, the word that I'm skirting is uh, traffic, and it's Jesus. hard because that word is hard. Um, it was really brief, um, a few hours, and I was lucky, and I escaped. And this is um, in Rhode Island? This was in Finland, so I was okay. studying abroad my junior so, year. Okay, gotcha. But junior year and, of high school, uh, not college. Yeah, junior okay. year of high school. Sorry, I'm, just, I'm trying to make um, sure I have the timeline right here. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is a wild start to this interview. All right, I'm, I'm in. So, okay. I had like a crazy, a crazy few years growing up. And so, like, I say all of this to say, like, I had a lot of shit to build character off of. Um, you know, I had to get hard fast. Yeah, well, um, I'd, I'd say that's uh, okay. So, cool. We con- we're like, we have Kawasaki's disease. You gain 130 pounds overnight. You figure out, like, all of the trauma of your father having a brain tumor, like, you settle on that, somehow you begin to, like, decide you're going to come out as queer in a very non-safe time, even though everybody likes to say, like, after 2000, it was all fine and good. Uh, I know Rhode Island, and I'm certain that wasn't, like, a cakewalk. And then on top of that, then, like, three years later, you get abducted and trafficked in a foreign country? Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so I... (laughs) Yeah, when you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I tend to be a, a blunt person, but like, I'm yeah. just putting all that together. I'm like, wow, yeah. that's, that is, uh, I mean, like I said, I start every episode by like talking about people with their childhood, but this is by far like the craziest one I've done so far. So, okay, what happened in Finland? Sorry, because I cut you off in the middle of that story. So, okay, you get abducted in a bar, but then you said it was relatively brief. How do you like escape that? Um... <laughs> I got lucky. They fell asleep. I made a run for it. I debated about whether or not to go to the police or to the hospital. And the feeling that I got was that nobody would believe me um, because I was, you know, fat. And therefore, why would anybody? And I was American. So, like, I just, it, it wasn't a particularly good time to be an American abroad. It was, like, 2003. Um, <laughs> it was 
it was a perfect storm. So, you know, I kept my mouth shut and I came home and uh, dealt with the fallout of that for the next few years. Like I, you know, I graduated high school and I went to college. Um, I started out. Did you tell anyone like in your family and everything when you came home? Yeah. um, I had told my mom uh, who made me go to the hospital and, um, and made me promise to get counseling. But I, I told her not to tell anybody else. I actually, I wasn't going to tell her, but I told my best friend. And she said, like, look, if you don't tell your mom, I'm going to. Um, <laughs> Good friend in so, that respect. But, like, that's talk about tough love. Yeah. Like, that's a tough one to hear in that circumstance, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I didn't want to tell anyone. I thought I could just, like, pretend it was fine. Um, which, uh, as it turns out, doesn't work so hot. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> So I, uh, yeah, I had to kind of deal with the fallout of that for the next few years. And I, you know, by the skin of my teeth, um, you know, got through college in four years. Um, you know, I graduated high school, got into college, went through college. Um, and I'm not going to pretend it was pretty. It wasn't like my GPA was a mess. Uh, I studied creative writing and um, I graduated into the recession at, um, in 2009. So I graduated in 2009, right after the economy tanked with a creative writing degree. And <laughs> you were the poster <laughs> child for millennials. Yeah. It was like, okay, all right, well, what now? I thought that like, if I graduated college, I got a good job. No, that's not how that works. Um, but actually it was for me, I was really lucky. Um, so I got a call center job, uh, pretty quickly. Um, and kind of established a foothold in, um, you know, in, in cube life. Um, and, and was that, are, are you up, uh, sorry, you said 2009, so you're still in Rhode Island at this point, or did you move elsewhere in between? So I uh, was commuting from Providence to Boston, or to Quincy. Okay. Um, and then I moved to Brockton uh, to commute to Quincy. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a great apartment. It was uh, it was the strangest little apartment. It had, like, a three-person jacuzzi tub and, like, oh, a... Cool. Um, a shower that you could fit like six people in, but the balcony was like falling off of the house and there was like mold growing in the ceiling. It was the weirdest place. Um, <laughs> but it was mine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's home. You're, tw- you're 22, 23, figuring it out. Yeah. So, so how, how are you getting through that? Like you mentioned like, okay, you went to your mom, she, you know, patted you on the back, said all the right things, sent you on your way to counseling. But like, I, I would imagine you're behaving pretty fucking weirdly uh, and your family is like, hey, like, what's up? But you're not like nobody knows really what the deal is. Like, how does that all work? Like those last two years at home and like what's college like? I mean, it just was. I, you know, I, I had PTSD uh, yeah. and, you know, it, I had a lot of bad days. Um, and I don't know what the rest of my family thought. I guess I've never asked them. Um I was just sick a lot and I'd always been kind of depressive. So like, you know, maybe it was just like, you know, Oh, I'm depressed, moody teenager. I think they kind of wrote it off to that. Um, are you close with them? Like, are you close to other people in your family? Is it like you and your mom are kind of like the tight ones? Um, I mean, my family is kind of a pack Mm. and, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange relationship because I've always been kind of the, the offbeat one. Um, and we're closer now, I think, than we used to be, but I, I think I've always felt like I, I had to shield things that were, like, too dark for them. Um, like, I felt like this particular thing was too, too hard for them. Like, I talked about it in an interview a few months ago, and I'm pretty sure it's the first time that most of them heard that any of this had happened. 
it's it's kind of selective sharing. I don't know. It, it feels very Irish when I say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, it's interesting. Only like I I too am from a, a fairly Irish family and we, very similar behavior where it's like there's a lot going on, but then we, you see each other at a, like a holiday or whatever. It's like so how's work? Work's good. How's life? Life's good. How's the kid? Kid's alive. You know what I mean? Like and that's yeah. like the conversation. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, so we're, we're not going to talk about, like, the cancer or the addictions or, like, the relationships or, like, nothing, right? Like, we're just going to gloss over everything? Sounds good. All right. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to play some beer pong and call it a day. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. exactly. Uh, <laughs> how, how big is your family? Is it, like, a, is it a big, you describe them as a pack, so I assume it's a big group of them, at least. My mom's side is pretty huge. She's one of five. Okay. So um, we just had a family reunion, and not everyone was there, but it was still, like, 40 people. Okay. Um, we get together like once a year and like all stay together and there's at least 40 of us every time. Like it's, it's sizable. Um, and my dad's side is smaller and we don't gather as much. She's one of three. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm pretty close with my aunt on my dad's side. Um, she's my godmother and like, it's kind of like the reason I'm an activist. Um, (laughs) she's, uh, she kind of like, uh, fostered that in my youth. Um, I mean, I'm not not close with my family. It's just that I, I think I'm. This is a new thing for me to identify as, but I guess I'm. I'm like kind of guarded about um, about things that are hard for me. Like I'll talk all day about the things I'm excited about, but um, when something is hard and I'm in it, like I, I don't, uh, I don't want to talk about it much. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued by that because it, it, it seems like you found some some level of success kind of through whatever that those tough things were where it was like those times when you kind of hunker down and you're like closing other people out or the times when you're like cool like I pushed myself through graduation I've pushed myself through college I've you know moved myself up the coast and there's like a lot of different things that are kind of happening in tandem with that so I mean as far as defense mechanisms go at least it's a, a fairly successful one yeah I mean I I am the sort of person who always just figures it out um, you know, I, something that I can kind of hold on to in my identity is that like, regardless of what it is, I'm going to find a way to make it work. Um, I am always looking for a bigger problem to solve. I'm always looking for, um, you know, something that I can do, um, that will make me feel like I have done something worthwhile. Um, so, um, I think that kind of survival mechanism, uh, has, has served me well and has got me to where I am. Um, well, speaking of which, like you, you'd mentioned your aunt who was kind of like the one who, uh, fostered that sense of purpose, that sense of kind of higher calling and in, in activism. What, what was that? What were those first kind of projects you guys kind of got involved in? So my aunt, um, was deeply involved in, um, in gay liberation and AIDS work in the nineties, uh, and late eighties. Um, so she had been, you know, in, in deep in the early gay movement. It's um, not, not really a shallow end of the pool when it comes to 90s and AIDS. Right? Um, she has grown in her activism over the years, and we kind of bounce off of each other about, like, what we're reading, what we're thinking, who um, who's giving information that we can learn from and grow from and be better, um, better activists, better allies to communities. <laughs> the way that she described it a few days ago was... Um, making a series of small dings in the, in the force field of oppression. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's kind of 
what she's always done. And I think I've just, I've gotten that from her, you know, just whatever you do, make sure that it is, is putting a ding in, uh, in the force field and uh, making it a little bit weaker. So I found this has been a common thread and a lot of people I talk to. And so this podcast obviously focuses on a ton of different types of people. Uh, but this kind of seems to pull through regardless who they are is like, a lot of people start off by trying to, I guess, voice that activism or that idea of, you know, that, that small ding in oppression takes some form of art, right? Uh, and you mentioned you and you end up going to school to be a creative writer. So in your youth, kind of as you're getting involved in the activism scene, you're getting involved in kind of righteous causes. Is that where some of like this artistic expression is start, starting to manifest? Is those ages or is that come kind of later in life? It's weird because I feel like this is um, the last few years have been the first place where all of the parts of the things that I was interested in are starting to come together um, because I was always like very social justice motivated like I did um, back then it was called Gay Straight Alliance in high school and I did debate club was involved in that kind of thing but I also did theater and um, I've always really loved to sing and I wrote a lot of poetry I was on the literary magazine in college I was the editor of the literary magazine um, and um, I was also involved in the, um, the sexual assault awareness group in my college that was advocating for policy changes around the way that the school handled, um, you know, sexual assault and, and issues of consent. So I, I've always kind of done those things separately and like bounced around between them. Um, and um, when I went to law school, I was all law for a little while because you have to be, right? Like law school kind of takes up all of your consciousness. The summer between my first and second year of law school, um, I'd been in a relationship for almost six years, and it ended due to some domestic violence, and I was in a really bad place, and um, that was when I met um, my people in Portland, like my pack, my, um, my, um, my friends, um, and they were just starting up this kind of initiative to um, work on arts and, and entertainment events that serve social justice. So like um, events designed to educate about consent and body positivity and um, identity um, and kind of working through like why society is constructed the way that it is. So like um, a baseline so example, we do like a performance of the vagina monologues with like a talk back after and then some sort of kind of like engaged civic event following that weekend, that, that sort of packaging. Yeah, actually, we did that one year. Um, I think it was two years ago. And we, um, we gave everybody in the audience kazoos. Um, awesome. And, and we basically said, like, look, like, this is our problematic phase. And we love it because it's meant a lot to a lot of us and it's done a lot for the movement. And also there are parts of it that don't hold up to, um, you know, how we understand social justice now. So when you hear something... Um, blow off your noisemaker and we'll make a note of it and we'll talk about it afterwards. Oh, this is... I love that. That sounds phenomenal. Yeah, it's like honoring our problematic phase, um, you know, <laughs> honoring um, the work that has come before us and not just kind of trashing it because it's not, um, you know, it's not up to current standards of of what social justice um, is understood to be, you know, like we didn't all just wake up one morning all with perfect understanding of what social justice is supposed to look like. Ten years from now, I'm going to be the dinosaur struggling with new, with new terminology. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just yep. go back and you're like, oh my. <laughs> so, so like we do um rocky horror um we do rocky horror every year and we use it to educate about consent like the scene where um like the sex scene which has really dubious 
if not non-existent consent practices. Um, <laughs> our shadow cast is basically like, even hey, that is like a very that. very liberal interpretation of that scene. <laughs> yeah, no, that scene is is raped by deception. So we mm. basically have our shadow cast being like, Frank, you can't fucking do that. Get out of here. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and like renegotiate um, and kind of reinterpret, you know, something that was really helpful for everybody in the cast to kind of work on their identity um, and take that piece of it and kind of try to elevate it and educate people with it. So like you can keep your fave, even if it's problematic, but like maybe look at it and examine it. So in, in the spirit of the show, I guess I got to ask, like, how'd you meet these people? Cause you mentioned like you get out of this very long, like shitty abusive relationship and then you're like, Oh, but then I had this like wonderful flock of friends who have now turned me into my favorite type of person. I feel like that seems like an important step here. It is. So my aunt Kathy, actually, oh, my, okay. my actual Bring aunt, it full circle. I see. Um, um, introduced me to my, uh, my best friend, Gael, um, who I did not realize was like a cousin by marriage. Like, so we're not blood related, but we're like, tangentially related through another cousin of a cousin um uh, and was like i think you yeah i think you guys need to know each other so we uh we got coffee like two days later and it was like did we just become best friends yep (laughs) (laughs) it was easy like immediate (laughs) and they brought me to um an organizational meeting from nash this group of people that was just forming and um that was it it was like okay so we're gonna do all of this stuff and we're gonna do it all in like two or three months so let's get going Hmm. Okay. And what were you, what were you doing when you first got up to Maine? Where were you? Um, when I first moved to Maine, I was living in Old Orchard Beach with my grandmother, okay. um, who passed last year. Sorry to hear um, that. and she was awesome. She was one of my favorite people. And, uh, and her condo was where I went when I was growing up and stayed in the summers and a couple of, you know, in the, stayed a bunch of times. And it was just like the place where I knew I was going to be happy. So, um, my then partner and I moved up here and moved into the room where I would stay for a few months. And, uh, I was working at that time at a dental marketing job where I was on call like 24 seven. Uh, <laughs> Those were like all the worst words conformed into one job, like on call, oh, dental marketing all sound like not a fun time. It was, it was hard. And I quit abruptly. Um, at like three in the morning, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Well, what were you doing there in the first place? If you had a law degree, I didn't yet. Okay, no, so I, I didn't get my law degree okay. until. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so I moved here in 2012. I started law school in 2013. Oh, I got you. Okay. So I had, I had that mixed up. I thought you did law school directly after college. Okay. So you move, nah, you move, out, you move out here. You're uh, essentially like putting together this like artsy collective, like, uh, performative company and then on the side also going to law school but also working like this backbreaking job no 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 so the, the backbreaking job was first okay thank um, you for resetting this for me because I, I got all out of order here I apologize it's so much I'm sorry <laughs> no no worries that's the idea um so backbreaking job yeah I worked a bunch of call center jobs uh decided I was done decided to go to law school um, got another call center job while I was waiting to get into law school, which was a better call center job uh, up here. Got into law school. Um, had my first year of law school where it was all law all the time. Um, I uh, was also trying to publish a book that I'd written, but I gave up because publishing is hard. Between 1L and 2L, a partner and I split, and I met these amazing people. And so my second year of law school was when I was in law school and organizing these events. 
um, in my third year as well. And I, I assume you went to law school in Maine then, obviously. Yep. Yeah, I went to Maine Law. All right, cool, cool. Everyone I knew of was like, that was like the new place to be for galleries and Friday, you know, the first Friday walks and all the gallery walks and all that and all the concerts and the shows and, you know, even the comedy scene up there at one point was like pretty thriving. Uh, and so for, mm. for a while there, like that was, that was it. And then obviously coupled with all the damn good beer in Portland. Yeah. Portland is, is pretty lively. So I, um, yeah, I needed something else to do because I couldn't just do law school and like, you know, when you're recovering from um, just a bad relationship. A sentence I would never utter. Okay. Well, <laughs> the thing is, if all you do is law, you go crazy. I think. Like, That's I think it. I think it just. You have to have something that you can put your heart in, because if you put your heart in the law all the time, you're just you're just asking to get it all bruised up. <laughs> um, you know, I was wrestling with as as all law students do, wrestling with like what makes our society like why is it the way that it is how did it get this way um what is it built on like what kind of bricks did they use um and where did they come from and um and it was you know it was hard for me to hear um I think different people from different backgrounds take it differently but for me like just kind of like looking at the way that this country came together I was like oh oh so a lot of these things were, you know, this is just the way that we've always done it. And, um, you know, so that's just precedent as a concept, but also like, you know, who's making those decisions? Where are they coming from? What are they based on? Um, and, you know, it was all rich white dudes. Uh, so so um, I, I guess I, like, I want to follow up and drill down on that a little bit because like as a, as a queer black man, like my immediate response is like, well, duh, <laughs> I could have told you that a long time ago, but like, I'm, I'm always curious, like, what is the, what is that like awakening process like for like white people, especially as you get into not like the, oh, like, I'm sure there's like some, you know, Illuminati society that runs the world, but like in law school, all of a sudden you're drilling down and be like, oh no, like here are the actual cases in which we set precedent in which people, you know, are able to get houses or have their land taken away from them or, you know, subclassed is, you know, diseased or crazy or like all these different things. So what was it that really like popped to you and you were like, oh shit, like this is way deeper, darker shit that I would thought I was getting into. So I had an awareness of, of racism as a thing. Um, and I had believed myself to be, you know, working in an anti-racist capacity to some extent, but I was also raised by a cop. Um, well, I wanted to circle back to that point. So I was like, I, I feel like your ideas about race may have been colored slightly, but like. Yeah, it, it was complicated. Um, like, my dad didn't want my Aunt Kathy to talk to me about, like, racism or about queerness. Um, like, didn't want me, like, to, it was, it was, it was complicated, um, as most things are. But so, like, in law school, I went into law school, you know, a survivor of a violent crime thinking I'm going to be a prosecutor and help people who can't get justice. And then I sat down in criminal law class and was like, oh, shit, victims are not the people who are getting the worst end of the stick here. <laughs> like, um, there was kind of this, this shift where it was like, oh, oh, this is what criminal justice is made of. Um, I think that was the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest shift for me because I guess I just, having been raised in a police family, like didn't really, didn't really get that part of history anywhere. 
And so, um, with, I, you, you had mentioned, like, obviously you've been a victim of, by the sound of it, numerous violent crimes, like you've been international crimes at some point. So you go in really with, like, a, I'm, I'm here to go round up the bad guys and make the world a safer place kind of mentality. That's, like, why you went to law school. Right. Um, sorry, you know, Rod, I, 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 I had like, that image in my head kind of painted as you were, you know, you're already the kind of, like, this lefty, artsy, you know, Portland hippie of some sort. Yeah, I thought I was going to, like, you know, help victims and work on, like, international war crimes. And, you know, because I, I thought international law was a thing that you can get a job in. If not, don't go to law school for that. <laughs> um, international business, yes. International law, no. International human rights law is not, like, a... I mean, I guess it might be sort of now if you're doing immigration law and policy, but like, it's just, it's not what you think it is. Um, That's fair. Human rights is really criminal defense a lot of the time. Um, That's a poll quote right there. Human rights is really criminal defense. But really, um, though, because that's the way we set up the system is that like most humans are criminalized if they don't conform to white supremacy. Seriously. I, I, I wasn't, I didn't go into it thinking that way. I mean, you know, I, I acknowledge that I'm coming to it kind of late, but, like, I, I... I mean, you're ahead of 90% of people. <laughs> so, um, welcome aboard. We can take more of you, I promise. Yeah, I... Criminal law was kind of the, the waking up point, and then I took a class that was on race, gender, and sexual orientation, and it was basically, like, the, the day that we looked into critical legal theory and basically, like, how is law? Why is law? Where does it come from? Um... I remember just having this like burst of energy and like, cause my first year of law school, the feeling was I don't belong here. I'm not like these people. Like I like, I'm too weird to be in law school. I'm too dysfunctional to be in law school. Like I'm too queer. I'm too depressed. I'm too goth. I'm too other to be in law school because the people who like fit in law school are exactly who you expect to fit in law school. <laughs> and I, um, was getting really good grades in law school because I was working really hard, but I still felt like an other. Like every time an issue would come up, um, I feel like the way that legal issues are discussed are very us and them, and I was always a them. Hmm. Um, what do you mean by that? And I'm trying to think of a really good example. Um, a lot of it was around, like, we had to discuss rape both in court and in criminal defense, or in criminal, not criminal defense, in criminal law. Um, and I feel like most of the discussion was from people who didn't have firsthand experience and the people who did like, we had to like set a time to gather criminal, uh, criminal law was like a full day exercise on Fridays. Uh, every Friday was just like crim law all day. And we had to like, you know, meet in secret on Facebook and like, Hey, here's how we're going to tap out if we have to tap out. Um, um, because you'd get, you know, all these people in the class saying, well, like, didn't they deserve it if they did that? And it's like, oh, oh, no, you no, please, please do not. And that um, is just like the prevailing theory of, of law school, or at least of UMaine. Yeah, I mean, I feel like law school, I, I think UMaine is one of the better cultures of law schools because, you know, people are pretty collegial and, like, want to help each other. You spend your whole first year in the same seat with 80 people in the same room uh, taking the same courses. Uh, so it forms a bond. Like, that's your entire class. 
And um, so you mentioned that sense of kind of like othership, especially that first year. But as you mentioned, from my understanding, like first year law school is like you need to find your study group and it's pretty much going to be you and like these eight friends for the next three years. So like you better find somebody you like or else this sucks. So like did you find those people or were you just kind of like grinding it out solo, like figuring out law school? Well, so like I had people that I was friendly with and I sat front row center. So like you sit in the same seat all year at Maine Law. Um, I sat front row center on the first day and that was where I was going to sit um, because I had, well, I'd done so poorly in college and it was because I hadn't, I hadn't tried really. I was kind of too busy being traumatized. Um, so in law school, I was like, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to live up to my potential. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to put myself in a position to succeed. So I sat front row center. And my front row posse and I, like, we kind of had, like, a, a bond because we were always right front row center. It wasn't like you could slack off. Um, and I had people that I was friendly with, but I didn't have, like, a study group because my first year, like, I was coming home to this bad relationship uh, all year. I was just kind of trying to get home and do my homework all, alone in my house and get back to, you know, doing my pseudo-married life. And were, um, you, were you married at that point or you guys were just, like, pseudo-married? pseudo married it was like we'd been together living together for probably like five years but we weren't married i mean yeah. once um, you live together for more than a year you're you're in that pseudo married state you know what i mean like i've seen you in yeah. every state of your life i've seen you sick i've seen you vomit i've done your laundry like we, we live you know life's here now <laughs> yeah so and then like second and third year like i don't know i i was busy organizing events with this other crew of people so like mm. i was still working really hard at law school, but I was spending most of my time like outside of law school with, um, you know, this, this group of radical queer organizers and artists like making stuff. And is, is that kind of influencing your, I guess your legal outlooks at that point too? Cause you're, you're kind of having this whole like, Oh shit, this is a little different than I thought it would be awakening alongside, you know, these radical queer artists. Uh, so is that kind of, uh, are those working hand in hand? Is that how you end up becoming a public defender? I can't remember what I thought I was going to do second year of law school. I second year of law school was like, I was kind of back in survival mode. Cause I felt like my life had just been pulled out from under me. Right. Cause now um, we're out of the comfort of the pseudo marriage, no matter how horrible it is. Like my routine is shaken. My world is shaken. My people are now different. Like what the fuck am I doing? Right. And I was broke and I was alone and I was trying to like make my mortgage by myself when I had counted on like having another person there. Um, and I was scared because um, I really thought that nobody else was ever going to love me. And like, what am I going to do now? Um, and I also like isolated from all the friendships that I had. So I was like, really like, I, w- I was with these new people, but I was like, just getting to know them it was a dark time for me. And at the end of my second year of law school, I found out or I had applied and I found out, I think around February that I had gotten um, legal fellowship for the following summer at the National Center for Transgender Equality. Oh, wow. Um, That's dope. Congrats. Yeah. And it was, that was the turning point for me. It was like, oh, I'm really going to do something that matters. (laughs) Like, I felt like, okay, like I have an opportunity. Like I have a chance. I, I'm going to go try DC on and see how it feels. You know, it was 2015. So it was like the summer that marriage equality came through. It was an exciting time to be in the queer movement. Um, It was an especially exciting time to be in the trans movement. I was also like, a baby non-binary at that point. I was like, I think just, just past egg stage. Um, 
pardon my ignorance here, and please feel free to, like, clean up any missteps I make here. But, like, because, especially in our age group, it's, like, it's not like that was, as you mentioned, like, that wasn't even something, like, on the radar until, I don't know, our 20s or so. And so then I'm always curious, like, what's the decision-making process like around it? Like, how, like when you, because... In my view, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, like, gender is made up, it's all a construct, like, you want to, like, say, fuck that binary, that makes sense to me, is that it? Is it just, like, dust your hands off of it? But that seems very, like, the entire expression of your identity would be more complicated than that, so I don't want to, like, reduce it to that. But what is, how does that come about? Like, when you decide, like, okay, I'm, like, I've decided I'm non-binary, I'm coming out as non-binary, and, like, I guess, <laughs> for, the, like, the ninth question attack on that, like, how's the cop dad and everyone about that? Woof. Um, <laughs> yes, no, I, I so, would say woof. That was a terrible interviewer question because that's like nine questions in one. No, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a good question. It's a big question. Um, you know, it was, I think, very slowly and then very quickly. Um, in 2014, I went to, so the summer of 2014, right before my proto marriage ended, um, I went to uh, the Philly Trans Health Conference. And um, I had a couple friends who were trans, but didn't really know that much. Like, I didn't know that non-binary was a thing until I went there. Uh, so summer of 2014, I go to this conference, and um, and I meet non-binary people, and I'm like, what do you mean I don't have to choose one? Um, because I'd always felt like girl was not entirely adequate for me. Um, and there were a lot of like, I don't know, like in high school, there was a running gag that, um, oh, this is so profane, bad politician move, but like there was a running gag that I had a huge dick. Like it was kind of a running joke with my friends. Sorry, and, I but like, it was, I was, um, I was the boyfriend in all of the, you know, the friendships and like my college roommate, um, you know, I, I was like the husband in our, in our dorm room. And I don't know. I just, I was always like playing the guy role and that always felt more natural for me hmm. um but I didn't feel like I could transition um because I mean you know this is some fucked up internalized transphobia but I'm five foot two and I'm very round and I thought like nobody's ever gonna buy me as a dude so why would I transition and also like being fat um I had been taught um that the only way to be an attractive or desirable fat person was to be hyper feminine um, I guess, yeah, there's like, no real idolized, like, male fat, like, there, if there is, it's mostly associated with power and money, it's not associated with, like, the aesthetic of that person. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted people, I just wanted to be loved, like, that was, that was a thing that I really, like, that was a resounding theme of my late teens and early 20s, and, um, you know, for a long time in my, in my childhood and adolescence, there weren't feminine clothing options, so I was, like, dressed in the husky boy section because that was all that fit and then all of a sudden there were these hyper feminine pinup outfits available and when I wore those people liked me so um I was kind of taught that like if you want people to like you and think you're attractive like this is how you dress um but then that didn't really line up with like a lot of who you were <laughs> yeah it felt like drag and I did yeah. I don't hate it I still don't hate it you know I didn't well, hate drag it, is fun, I don't right? hate like, it now. people like drag drag's a good time doesn't mean that's like you 24 7 yeah, I wanted to be able to take it off, and I felt like there wasn't a way for me to take it off. Later that summer, I met all of these people in Portland, and um, a lot of them were trans and non-binary and queers of different varieties. And um, I felt like I had found 
a home, um, you know, with friends, um, for my heart, for my identity. And it was like, oh, okay. Like I, I am safe to be who I am here because I found myself like, oh, okay. And I started letting myself kind of experiment with that and push back on that. And, um, you know, uh, over the course of the next year or so, it was like, yeah, no, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, it's been an evolution. I, um, I went on testosterone for a little while. Um, I went off testosterone again. I'm not saying I'll never go back on, but like, um, I've thought about transition in a lot of different ways and, um, I'm pretty good with where I am right now for right now, because hormones are, uh, a lot of work for me, not for everyone, but for me, uh, I think figuring out my emotions when I'm doing so many high stress things, um, I kind of need to just make it as simple as I can. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's kind of where I've come to land on you know, non-binary folks, uh, not to paint anyone with a broad brush here, but like most non-binary people I've talked to are like, Hey, like I, I certainly question whether or not I fit into like the, the stereotypical like behaviors of my biological sex. And like, until I decide which gender I want to be for the rest of my life, I'm just going to tap out on this whole gender thing, take the non-binary route. And like, I will see y'all in 40 years when I make a decision or I don't because it doesn't really fucking matter. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think my decision is that, like, I don't have to do gender. I can just put right. no thank you. I will pass. <laughs> like, why bother? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's yeah. made up and constrictive and silly anyway. Like, I, I don't have to do this. I wish I had this option yeah. when it came to race. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to wrap up kind of the, the biographical half here uh, with a couple of lighter questions because I feel like that was a, a heavy 45 minutes here of just, like, all sorts of things that like thank you for sharing all that with me first off uh, uh a, a handful <laughs> of questions <laughs> sorry that question like bubbles up like did i say too much um i sorry. i'm a firm <laughs> believer there is no such thing as saying too much on this podcast but i i i, I like to end the the biographical side uh, there's a couple questions i have like 20 questions here and i usually pick out a, a handful of them to ask different people depending on what i think might apply to them uh, so we'll see how well I do here. Uh, first and foremost is one of my favorite questions is to ask just anybody I meet. What was your first like vice or bad habit and who introduced you to it? Oh, uh, drinking. Um, and I introduced myself. My grandmother had a liquor cabinet. Um, and I don't know. I was like nine. And, oh, uh, <laughs> this story gets more Irish by the sentence. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I drank pretty heavily from nine to 19. It, it was not a good, uh, not a great idea. So um, by so the time it was day. legal, you were done, huh? Um, I had to have my gallbladder out when I was 19. Yeah, I and, um, you know, kind of a blessing because, like, I would get sick before I got drunk. So I stopped drinking for a while. Uh, That's a shame you quit so. before you moved to Portland's great beer scene, but probably for the best. Oh, no, I, I drink again now, just, like, in moderation. Um, it's, you know. Fair. One uh, I'm particularly curious for you, are, is your real name Brie, or is that a nickname? And if so, like, where does that come from, and what's it show for? Uh, Brie is a portion of the name that I don't use. Oh, okay. um, so, uh, yeah, I have a I have a longer legal name uh, that I don't use because uh, it doesn't feel like mine. Um so, but Bree's part of it. Fair. 
and the third one I'll pick here out of this extensive list. Uh, who's the most famous person you graduated with from high school? Or just people, you person you might want to shut up because they were, like, a credible, awesome person that's doing cool stuff now. Hmm. I graduated with an actual rocket scientist. Really? That's um, badass. Who? Uh, I think his name is, well, his name is Jeff Lichardello, and I'm pretty sure he's an actual rocket scientist now. I also graduated with Brett Azar, who has played, like, a, a hulking, or he was um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's body double in the recent Terminator movie. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I hope you guys remained on good terms. <laughs> That's not a pr- personal I, I don't think I've spoken to either of them since high school, but, um, you know, Facebook's cool, because you can kind of, like, poke around and see, like, what people are doing, and a lot of people that I graduated with are doing some pretty rad stuff. That's dope. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that is actually probably one of the cooler ones I've gotten from that. I, uh, I hijacked that question from a podcast called It's the Real, which I'm very fond of. Uh, and I'm blown away by the fact that no matter who you ask that question to, you typically get a really fun story out of it every single time. Uh, I will take actual rocket scientist and Schwarzenegger's body devil as uh, pretty high on the list. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, I want to come back in a couple minutes and we'll jump back into uh, more of your work and sort of the campaign stuff happening current day. Sound good? Sounds great. And we are back. We're still here with Bree Kidman, who has been kind enough to continue to sit down with us after I continue to ask very bad questions here in the first half of this interview. Uh, I want to jump into our second half. (laughs) I appreciate that. Uh, Self-deprecating humor is what we do. Uh, <laughs> I am one of those people is my, I guess, the, the target section of this interview. Uh, so we like to kind of talk to people about, you know, what kind of people they are. Uh, this season, we are sitting down with those political people. Or I guess I want to talk to you a little bit how you decided on doing this. So we, on the first half, kind of got right up to you getting out of law school and kind of getting into activism and uh, kind of the, the other side of the law that you didn't expect to see yourself getting into. How did you kind of move from hey, I want to defend individual people to I need to do something on kind of a, a bigger, more mass scale? So the very short answer is that I needed a bigger problem to solve. Mm. Um, a common theme that's in kind your of life, like, Yeah, um, but the longer answer is that um, I tried to engage with Susan Collins a bunch of times and got really frustrated and sad and uh, ultimately angry enough to do something. Um, and then the, you know, the really long answer is that, um, so when FOSTA-SESTA was floating around, I uh, tried to engage with Susan Collins and, you know, with her staffers and played a lot of email tag, wound up sending like, you know, a 30-page policy paper I'd written on why FOSTA-SESTA, not on why FOSTA-SESTA was valued, but like on why 
decriminalization was actually the right path for sex work. At the end of kind of all the go-arounds to get that information to her, what I got was a form letter that didn't address anything that I'd raised. Um, and uh, it felt bad. And my friends were like, yeah, what did you expect? It's Susan Collins. You're not going to get anything back from her. <laughs> uh, and I was like, well, that sucks. Okay. So uh, a few months later, the Kavanaugh nomination comes up. And as a survivor, I feel shitty about the fact that uh, they let racists run the world. It sucks. <laughs> um, and uh, I watch the hearings and I see him freak out in this partisan death spiral of like the Democrats are making this happen and it's the Democrats fault. And I'm thinking to myself, like, that's not what the Supreme Court is about. Like, yeah, sure. There are left leaning justices and right leaning justices, but the Supreme Court is specifically supposed to be not partisan. It's supposed to be about, you know, interpreting the law based on the law, not about what your party says. And I got really mad and I got connected with a group that was um, going to DC. So I went down to DC and I banged down Colin's door until someone came out and uh, agreed to let me meet with a staffer the next day. So I went to a couple of people from Maine to meet with a staffer the next day. And uh, I just wanted to know why, like what Susan Collins was considering when she was making this decision, what she was taking into, into consideration. Because I'd read about advice and consent. I'd read, you know, some stuff from the Federalist Papers. I'd read a whole bunch of like how this process is supposed to work. And I just wanted to know what she was looking at. And all I could get was she's got a lot to think about. And I. Uh, well, duh, that's kind of the job, right? <laughs> like you think about shit for a living. I assume you have a lot of it to think about, but I need a little more than that. <laughs> and I pressed back and it was just like, she's just got a lot of things to think about. And I was devastated. I was so upset. Um, I left that building feeling just so demoralized. And the next day when she was giving her speech about why she was going to vote for Kavanaugh, like, and talking about how, like, she'd been bullied by all these survivors coming to her office. And um, I felt like, you know, all of these people had had our trauma, like, used as a political pawn and, like, cheapened in that way. Like, instead of, like, being treated like human beings who were sharing our experience and, like, talking about something that mattered to us, like, a public policy decision that mattered to us for legitimate reason. We were just kind of brushed aside as as a partisan trick. And, um, and it hurt. Um, I was really sad. And um, the election was a few months later, and there was a candidate in Maine um, who was a good, a good dude. His name is Zach Ringelstein. And um, I looked into him because I remember thinking, like, he's not that much older than me. What's up? Like, he's a year older than me. Um, he doesn't have political experience. And um, I was thinking about it, and I was like, what qualifies this dude, like, over me? Like, why, if this dude can run for Senate, why can't I? Um, and uh, he happened to have a good amount of money. And, uh, <laughs> That'll help. And I thought, well, fuck it. You know, like, I have gone to law school. I interned with the Maine's Permanent Commission on the Status of Women. I was a law fellow at the National Center for Transgender Equality. I've actually worked on federal policy. Like, I'm running for Senate. I'm going to do this. Because um, if Susan Collins, you know, like, can't even answer a question, like, I can do better than that. I, I, I would um, hope so. <laughs> I guess uh, I'm curious, like, what was what was your decision-making process then? And Because uh, there's that moment from the people I've talked to so far, like I said, uh, I think, yeah, that's the fourth I've done with a uh, congressional candidate. Everybody seems to have this moment of, well, shit, why not me? And then they have a moment of, 
well, why me? And then you get to this moment of, well, how me? And it sounds like you decided on the why me and the why not me, but, like, how... There's this obstacle of, like, where do I get staffers? Where do I get money? Where do I, like, how do I run a fucking campaign, right? Like you said, you've never done this before. So, like, what's the, what are those early days? Like, how are you getting all that into gear? Um, so, late December, early January, I um, started, I switched gears from, from music into, um, into researching how I was going to do this. And I applied for some training programs. Um, I sat in on a couple conference calls. Um, I ultimately was uh, got a partial scholarship to go to the Victory Institute. Um, so in April, I flew down to Houston and did the Victory Institute, which is like a three and a half day intensive like campaign boot camp. Um, and up until that point, I was nervous because I didn't know anything about how a campaign was supposed to run. Like I'd canvassed before and you know done um, political stuff. Like I worked on campaigns with Planned Parenthood. Um, I'd interned there and you know worked on roll call votes and stuff like that, but I hadn't, like, uh, run a campaign. Um, so I took this training and, um, you know, read some other training materials from other training programs, and the information basically all led to the way that you win a race is to raise as much money as you possibly can. <laughs> um, the way to do though. politics is to get all the money. Um, and that didn't sit well with me. I did not like that um, because um, unlike other people in this primary, like my friends are not millionaires. <laughs> my friends are broke over extended queer people. You know, I said, you know what? I don't know until I try. So let me sit down and start making calls. Um, Who was your and first call? I sat down. And my first call was my mom. <laughs> so I'll be lying to that, but like, yeah, I, if I don't know where to start, like, my mom's definitely the person you have for money, right? Like, am I like, you got like twenty five bucks you can spare me so I can get an email list? <laughs> my mom and my stepdad actually both did um, Max primary contributions. They were like, oh, wow. you know, go with God, do the thing. Okay, so at least the family had some money. Um, <laughs> um my mom and my stepdad, yeah. Um, it's interesting, like, my family really, like, straddles class lines in a really strange set of ways. It really, there's no rhyme or reason to it, but there's the whole spectrum there. Hmm. Um, but my mom and my stepdad were like, yeah, we're in. Like, do this thing. Um, we're proud of you for doing what you believe in. Um, and, um, you know, I called a couple other family members. I sent my family members some emails, like, hey, I'm about to do something really weird. You're probably going to hear some weird shit about me in the news. Like, if you want some distance from me while I do this, let me know so I can, like, keep you out of it. Um, but, Did anyone respond uh, to that? Did anyone get back to you like, hey, I don't want to be a part of this? No, actually. All of my family members, you know, from all sides of the political spectrum were like, do your thing. Like, huh. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I got a really good supportive response, which was great. Um, I hired somebody to help with fundraising, but it was kind of a struggle. And then like, so Bessie C jumped in and I love Bessie. She's great. We have a lot of, um, we have the same values and a lot of similar ideas, but different process and how we want to execute it. This is Bessie, um, what's the last name? And also, sweet. Sweet. Okay. Um, and she had run for governor. So she had like a statewide network of donors that she was already tapping into. And then, you know, a few weeks later, Sarah Gideon jumps in and takes over the entire race um, and raises a million dollars in 10 days because um, the, the DSCC had already decided that she was the candidate. 
Uh-huh. Uh, it seems to be how it goes once they make a choice. Like, like you said, the name, the name of the game is getting all the money together, and they've got all the money and all the access to all the people with the money. Yeah, and they had decided, you know, months, if not years in advance, that she was the candidate. And that's what I was getting from local organizations. Like, I started reaching out to local orgs that I thought would be, like, you know, reasonable people to partner with. Like, the local Equality Maine, I thought, would be, like, you know, an org that would want to partner with the first non-binary person to run for Senate. Nah. They didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Like, <laughs> um, so... Um, you know, starting to kind of try and have meetings with people in those organizations. And um, I was getting across the board from everybody I met with, you know, in those kinds of circles, like, no, Sarah Gideon's doing this. Um, And I was like, but the primary is next year, though. Um, Doesn't Maine get to choose? Um, And I reached out to the DSCC and uh, said, you know, I don't know if you're going to endorse in the primary, but like, I wanted to say, hi, I'm here. Like, and uh, they said, you know, it's very early in our process, but we'll get back in touch with you soon. And the next I heard from them was the day after Sarah Gideon announced they had endorsed her. Um, and it was like putting their whole body on the scale. And it was like it eclipsed everything else. Um, so I pretty quickly learned, like, you know, all of the shit that I had from campaign training about, like, raise as much money as you can. It wasn't going to work. There was no way I was going to be able to outraise this person. I had to find a different way to do it. Um, and so what ends up being that way? So, so what I'm doing now is something completely different. I basically, I think I learned all the rules so I could figure out what was wrong with them and how to break them. Um, Seems to be your path because, in law uh, and also in politics. Sort of, yeah. I mean, I knew that I was going to be breaking rules about identity because I wasn't, I didn't sanitize my social media. I didn't, you know, I didn't clean anything up. I'm, I'm who I am mm. and I'm 100% me. I'm not running as a polished version of myself. I'm not running as the, the prepackaged, poll tested, you know. You mean you don't have a PR handler who told you to tell me you started drinking at nine years old? That wasn't like a, a bit you worked out beforehand? Yeah, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, the idea that we are electing people who are products instead of people, um, I think, is part of why we don't have representation at the federal level. So I'm, um, I'm a bit split on that. I guess part of me, I, I, the rational part of me, like, believe, like wholeheartedly agrees with you, right? Like, we need human beings represented by human beings who understand human beings. Okay, I'm on board. The problem is, like, we, we can all agree, like, that's not how the machine works, right? The machine is driven by all these different factors, and it's brain, and it's perception, and it's, you know, messaging, and it's uh, mostly money, almost exclusively money. Some of it's nepotism. There's, like, a lot of things at play here. Uh, and to enact real change, I do believe you have to be able to play that game on some level. And I guess I get caught up deciding, like, how much do you play and how much do you not? Because, like, you know, the... The for you know, the the people closest to my heart, the you know, the never the never anybody but Bernie crowd type folks or Bernie's too right for us type folks who would turn around and say, Anybody who's willing to play any part of the game is, you know, corrupted and therefore like we should write them off. I would love to live in a world where like that was possible and we could be that perfect, but obviously like that's not really the case currently. So where I guess how do you how do you settle yourself on like how much of the game you're willing to play? Because it's not like you can just, like, never go shake another person's hand and ask them for money. Like, you're going to be getting donations, and you're going to, you know, it will be nice to bring in a couple that are 1000 and not $3. And, like, how do, you, how do you find the balance in that? So a couple of things are at play here um, that allow me to not really play the game that way. Um, one is that Maine has ranked choice voting. Oh, this is true. So, okay. 
Tell me um, more, because a lot of people across the country are not familiar with ranked choice, and they definitely don't have it. You don't just vote for the one person that you want to win. Um, in Maine, you can rank people who who you would you would like to have in that office in order of how much you want them. Um, so that if your first choice doesn't get any votes, uh, your vote is then bumped to your next choice. Uh, um, and for anyone listening at home, like looking for an explanation of how this works, you can just look at the Oscars voting. They use ranked choice voting. Oh, do they? Yeah, that's cool. that's that's always the example I um, point to. It's you know, ranked choice is a fucking shit show when you have ten candidates, but like that's generally it's a, a good example to point to. <laughs> I mean, it's basically an instant runoff. Yeah. Um, so in Maine, like people have the flexibility to choose a candidate or to vote for a candidate that really fits their heart and their values, knowing that their vote won't be, you know, thrown away. It can be, you know, bumped to the person who they think is more likely to win after that, and they still get to use their voice. They still get to vote for somebody who maybe doesn't compromise as much as they as a a candidate who's playing the game well there's also so during the kavanaugh debacle um a fund was created that is now sitting at about 4.1 million dollars i wanted to ask about this to run specifically again to run specifically against susan collins no matter who the candidate was pretty much correct it's for the democratic nominee okay um so there's four million dollars sitting in a fund um, and so I, uh, after my, oh my God, I'm never going to raise a million dollars in a week, uh, meltdown. <laughs> I'll call it a meltdown because I was, I was sad. I was disheartened. I was angry. I felt like. Well, you just spent 72 hours at a boot camp like, learning that that was the only way to ever win an election, right? It's like, I need to raise a million dollars a week or else I don't have a chance at this. Yeah. But there was also like, there was no way that I was going to be able to compete with somebody who, who was already doing that and who had all of the systemic things like on her side. Like it just, it got to be too much. The people who can raise a million in a day, we're going to, we're going to put you out of the race pretty quickly. All right. So, so what do we do about that? What, so what comes next? Like what's the pivot? So I'm sitting in my shower and I'm sad and I'm thinking about the $4 million. Um, and I'm thinking like, what would I even do with $4 million? Um, because I have about $13,000, which is not nothing. Hmm. Um, but it's certainly not, you know, like when you put it, um, on a graph next to the million dollars, it puts me like the other candidate had about $80,000 and we looked the same (laughs) and 13,000 and 80,000 are not the same. (laughs) It's just that everybody else has so much more money that it looks the same. Um, I would like to see that graph actually, because that sums up politics nicely. Here's a hundred thousand. Here's 10,000. Here's a million. Note the difference. (laughs) Right. And so when I was thinking about that, I was like, oh, that's the problem, though. That that is the problem. Um, I'm being held up to standards that I'm trying to fight. Like the reason I feel so bad is that I'm inside of the system that I'm trying to change. I thought about how like the idea of sending it on junk mail and um, attack ads on TV, like how that kind of turned my stomach when I thought about how many people's medical bills could be paid with $4 million. Like how many of the problems that I I say I would solve if I got elected, could I actually solve with $4 million? Um, Instead of just advertising what I would do if I got elected, like, can I just do some of those things instead? Hmm. Um, So from there I thought, okay, like, well, I have $13,000 to work with. Like, what can I do with what I have in the bank? Um, and so I've decided that instead of playing the rat race, um, I am going to, or I have been traveling all over the state and meeting with local groups about, um, organizations in their area that are doing good work and who could use a financial boost. 
And in the time leading up to the election, I am going to hold fundraisers for local causes. Um, huh. And um, see what I can do to do good things for communities rather than raising money to put in my bank account, to put in consultants' bank accounts, and to um, buy TV ads and to buy up space. I'm just going to try and connect with people and do good things for the community, which is what I would do if I was elected. Like, put my money where my mouth is. So if, are you promising that if you get the Democratic nomination, all four, four million of that's pretty much going in the same causes? Like, we're, we're raising funds, we're fixing roads, we're funding schools, we're doing all the shit we're talking about doing? So if I win the primary, um, I have not done all of the research to uh, talk in great detail about what what the mechanism will be. Mm. But um, the coordinated campaign for the Democratic Party in Maine is one hundred thousand dollars. And that covers, you know, people who are canvassing up and down the ticket um, and doing phones up and down the ticket. Um, So the ground game is kind of covered that way. Mm. Um, And uh, the remainder, you know, what is it? I think it's it's four four million dollars. So it's four point one now. So at least four million dollars. Um, and campaign finance law allows for uh, campaign money to go to a charitable contribution. Mm. Um, so I think what I would want to do is set up some sort of mechanism that would allow for relief for Mainers with extraordinary medical debt. Huh. Um, and that would that would be that'd be what you use the whole fund for though. Yeah, I mean, and I, I would want Addie Barkin's blessing for that. Um, you know, Addie Barkin is the person who kind of, like, is behind the Be a Hero Fund. Um, and he's somebody who is an activist dealing with ALS and the extraordinary medical death that comes with that. Um, and, you know, advocating strenuously for Medicare for all. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's the best use that I could think of <laughs> is to help people who are dealing with the consequences of the for-profit health system. I have, um, I have so many questions about this. So yeah, obviously an admirable cause, I guess, first and foremost, like what do you say to all the people like suffering, you know, the circumstances of other bad things that are happening? Like, what do you say to the people who are like, Hey, like, can we maybe break off, you know, a, a half million of that towards like this school whose like ceiling is about to collapse and kill a bunch of fourth graders or like this, you know, VA that got shut down or like whatever. The, I guess VA is a bad example because of healthcare too, obviously. But like the other issues at stake, like. Um, I settled on that because of you know of the activism behind the um, <laughs> behind the fund, um, and part of it too is you know the ethics of taking a ridiculous amount of out of state money. Um, felt off to me like there's a lot of talk about out-of-state money in this race and how like other people are paying and putting their weight on the scale uh in a main race um and i thought like what if you could put that money back into maine somehow hmm. um so i'm not necessarily opposed to like fixing the roof on the school although i'm hoping that that's what i get to do in the primary right yeah. um but um you know knowing that um susan collins vote on the tax bill basically gutted the affordable care act hmm. <laughs> um i mean Medical debt is the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in the United States. Um, it's, 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 I think, the most pressing issue for middle-class families. Ultimately, what happens to the $4 million is, is an abstract question for me. Like, I know that I will use it. If, if I win the primary, I will use it to put it back into Maine um, in hopes that um, letting the good speak for itself and the word of mouth that comes from a politician who will put their money where their mouth is um, instead of just buying up annoying TV ads. 
So this this leads me to the second part of this question I have. It's like, okay, I I wholeheartedly support this. This actually sounds dope. This is very much my cup of tea. How how the hell do you get the word out about that? Because if you're gonna spend, you know, let's call it, you know, after a couple of operating expenses, like three point eight million dollars back into the state of Maine, but none of that is going into advertising the fact that you're putting three point eight million dollars back into the state of Maine. Like, how does that help you win? Are you, are you, so if a charity gives you $10,000 to pay off the medical debt that's been ruining your credit forever, you tell someone about that, right? It, that depends. Am I healthy enough to tell somebody? How many people can I get to to tell? Do I have a job where I can tell my coworkers? You know what I mean? There, there are a lot of things that's dependent on, right? Like if the person you pay off 20000 for in, in medical debt goes back, you know, is healthy enough to go back to their job and their job is a place like they don't interact with anyone all day and they have like a very small family. It's like, I mean, you just spend $20,000 on essentially four votes. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a terrible ad campaign. <laughs> well, but I think so... I mean, not I that that's not the right thing to do, for the record. Like, I'm, I'm on board with the idea. I'm just saying, like, that doesn't really turn out votes in the way you might want them to. I think it, I, so, okay, so this hasn't been tested, right? Like, this isn't, like, something that is a, a field-tested and approved, like, way of politics. It is something completely new and different. Um, and Tiffany Bond is kind of, like, the, the prototype in that she did main raising that was, <clears throat> um, the word of mouth didn't get as far as it needed to for her to get elected, but it was, we can do this differently. Um, and so my thought is that $4.1 million has already been the subject of a lot of national scrutiny, right? Like it's been big news for a long time. Mm. If it's been big news for that long time and it goes to someone who says, I'm not going to spend it on the way that you want me to, I'm giving it back to Maine. That's big news too. Mm. <laughs> that's somebody who's saying like, I'm not playing the political game that, that ruined Susan Collins for us because ultimately what ruined Susan Collins was money, was the need to get money to keep getting reelected. Hmm. Um, so if I say, no, I'm not doing that, I'm doing something different and I'm doing it for Maine, um, that's big news. That gets out. That gets around. People talk about that. I, and I think if they talk about that in a way that is bigger and is more positive than if you get another annoying mail flyer. I mean, you get a mail flyer and the science says you look at it for maybe three seconds. And it's not really even enough time to get an impression about what you'll do or who you are or, you know, like if you're any good. Hmm. It's just enough to get name recognition. Whereas if you do something like this um, and you say, yeah, no, I'm <laughs> – I'm going to kick Susan Collins off by just not playing her game. Um, people talk about that. That's, that. that is a systemic change. So I, I guess here's my pushback on that question then. Who, who's talking about it? Because like you said, all, all the media people, all the news stations, all the like local reporters, like all those people are already kind of tied up and like have endorsed people you're running against. And so when you say like, I, I agree people ought to be talking about it, right? But, like, if the people you're hoping are going to be talking about it are already in the bag for other people, like, who's going to be being who's going to be pushing that message for you if you're not spending any money pushing that message yourself? So I'm not trying to, like, poke holes in your theory, by the way. I'm, just, I'm very fascinated by, like, the potential of how this would work. So after the primary, it would just be me and Susan Collins and maybe an independent. Fair, so, okay. I mean, that would be so it, the, the it, people that the news is... And then the, the vote blue, no matter who, people kick in and everybody kind of gets on board with what's going on here is the idea. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, if I, if I win the Democratic nomination, like, I, I kind of become the story. Like, Sarah right. Gideon and Bessie Sweet aren't the story anymore exactly. because they're not the nominee. Gotcha. 
um, up until that point, you know, during during the primary, which is really the race for me, um, people, I mean, it's it's a word of mouth ground game where I'm getting out to as many events as I can. I mean, I'm driving all over the state of Maine. I drove to Mount Desert Island and back last uh, last night. It was like three hours each way. So I was in the car for like six and a half hours um, to get to one meeting. Um, and I am just hustling around the state, getting to as many groups of people as I can and talking to them about how, like, we don't have to do what the national party says they want us to do. We don't have to do what the media says, you know, is the thing to do. Like the idea that the strongest candidate is the candidate with the most money Mm. is the problem because ultimately that's what keeps, um, the decision-making table in the hands of people who are too wealthy to share middle-class concerns. Mm. Um, if, if the richest candidate is the most qualified, if that's the equivalency that we're making, and that is the equivalency that the press makes, that is the equivalency that we are fed, um, the only way that we can get power back in the hands of middle-class people is to say, no, no, that's not what makes somebody qualified. That's not what makes somebody good for the job. I'm out there presenting that idea to as many groups of people as I can <clears throat> in hopes that um, that those ideas will take hold. And I don't know if it's a winning strategy, you know, like, People talk about it like it's not. Like, how, how well known do I have to be before you start prefacing every notion, mention of my name with lesser known? Because when you call someone lesser known in an article, what you're saying is you don't need to know them. Um, am I lesser known because I'm not, uh, not as famous? Or am I lesser known because I don't have as much money? So it's a combination of like pushing back on that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to kind of say, like, hey, what you're doing is, is, is the reason the process is so bad. <laughs> what you're doing... <laughs> is why we have such bad options in politics Um, and making people ask why and making people like look at the way that these narratives take shape and the way that these policies and these processes take shape. Like my, my whole thesis for doing this, this run for office is that the process matters. Um, The way that we decide who gets to make decisions informs the way those decisions get made. Hmm. Okay, uh, I guess I want to follow up and ask two things. Then, how how do you want the process to fundamentally change? Like, if you're elected, like, what do you what do you want to change about the process that takes more of the, the I guess the monetary advantages out of the process? Uh, and I guess m- more for on the lighter side of things, like we spend all this time talking about will it or will it not work? But I, I guess I'm curious, like, where have you gone? Like, who have you talked to? Like, who are the people? Like, who are the people of Maine that you've gotten the support of, or at least had a chance to meet with? And like, what are you, what are you hearing? And like, what are you learning from them? Yeah. So in terms of actual um, process changes, I think that in order to undo Citizens United, we need a constitutional amendment. Um, I think that's you know, the, the strongest path to kind of get around that. Um, you know, Betsy Street has talked about implementing clean elections, um, which is in Maine we have clean elections fund, which is basically you qualify by getting a number of small contributions from the largest number of people. So it's about how many people you can talk to versus how much money you can get out of them. Mm. And I like that. Um, but also I'm looking into, like, what if we made our elections more like a job interview with a test? where, you know, there is a fund and you get a budget and you have to execute a public policy project. And people vote based on how well you execute that project instead of how much money you can raise. Um, You know, people get a sense for what you will do when you are elected rather than how much money you can raise to tell them what you would do when you're elected. Wouldn't the argument Um, against that be, though, that, like, it favors experts of those particular fields? Like, if the the project that year was on healthcare, you know, it would favor doctors, or if the project that year was on, like, something budgetary, it favors economists, or however you break that down. 
I mean, I, I haven't really like, I haven't done enough research to really like solidify what this process will look like. Like I haven't drafted up the bill or anything. Mm. Um, but I think that we need an election process that's more responsive to um, selecting people who are qualified and who can do the work as opposed to people who can raise money to get elected again next time. That's fair. Uh, so I, ma- I imagine you support something like uh, Pete Buttigieg's constitutional amendment to, for, as far as campaign finance reform and looking at Citizens United. I have not read his. I don't know if he's, he's put out like a written draft. Like many things right now in the presidential election cycle, it is, it is a, a platform playing somewhere on a website. It's, it's hardly a bill that's been drafted to amend the Constitution quite yet. But yeah, uh, the, the law yeah. forever. Uh, the general idea of using the constitutional amendment to to deal with Citizens United, I think, is is that's I'm on board with that. Hmm. Uh, um, what is the response you're getting, kind of like out there on the road, and like like you said, you're taking this thirteen thousand dollars, you're going to do as much good as you can around the state of Maine, and like see as many people and help as many people as you can. Like, what's the response you're getting? I would imagine this is just like such a mind fuck, really, to like everyday America, where it's like, oh. Somebody's showing up to just like help me out of the goodness of their heart who also wants to be a politician? Like who are you? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I said this last night at the meeting that I was at. I think, you know, the people that I talk to are kind of self selecting because I think people don't really come up after you speak to like tell you, No, you're terrible, go home. <laughs> That's fair. Um, you know, people come up to talk to you afterwards to say, like, Oh my god, that idea is great. Um, but I will say that like I'm getting a mixture of people who are kind of stunned silent and people who are like, oh, my God, I never thought of it that way. And people are like, holy shit, yes, I've been waiting for someone to say this. <laughs> um, so I, um, I had to elbow my way into speaking at uh, a Democratic Party function a couple weeks ago. Um, initially, they just wanted Sarah Gideon there. And the Democratic Party in Maine is, is neutral in primaries. Yeah. And I was like, hey, guys, you can't do this. And they were like, oh, you're right, we're sorry. So they had Betsy and I speak, too. And um, I spoke to this crowd of, of people at this Lobster Bake about, um, about process and how process matters and how we need to decide together um, how we're going to decide who gets to make decisions. Hmm. You know, the statistic that I've trotted out a lot is that regardless of whether a law is a proposed law is the most popular thing ever or the least popular thing ever, it has a 30% chance of passage in, in Congress. Hmm. Um, we don't have a meaningful say in federal legislation now. And I don't think that that's an accident. I think that's, you know, that's money in politics. That's the result of um, a system which um, prioritizes fundraising for the next election over getting things done while you're there. Um, and that's not what we were designed for. Our system needs to change and we're not going to get there unless people can engage. And I think the way that it's set up now is designed to keep people throwing money at the, the team wearing their jersey rather than actually engaging with the substance of the issues. Um, and so I'm just trying to build a path for people to engage substantively. And from what I've seen so far, like it's working. I, I, I think that's probably what most attracted me to your campaign is that it has this sense of, I don't know, like actual grassroots instead of the the brand of grassroots that has kind of been co-opted over the last 10 years, especially like in internet culture. And it's like, well, the actual grassroots is going and rounding up 20 people and like putting them in a church basement and giving them some cupcakes and like a reason to stay there for 45 minutes and like giving them something to go home with to chew on and think about. Uh, and I, I don't know, I'm very attracted to the idea of kind of bringing that back into politics. Uh, 
you know, one of my things is I always ask people, like, how did you descri- how did you decide to call yourself whatever you call yourself? And, you know, in this case, maybe a politician or, you know, activist or what have you. But I, I'm most curious, like, how did you decide to call yourself a Democrat? Because it sounds like from a lot of how you align, you would have run independently if this was a different year. The Democrats have their problems. Um, the Republicans have their problems. Both parties have their problems. I went with Democrats because um, I felt like it was structure that had the most like-minded people. Um, As an independent, I think it would be very hard to reach people with similar values um, because independents are all over the map. Um, I do see value in coalition building. I do see value in like, in getting like-minded people together. Um, And, you know, I've had to compromise and back a lot of candidates that I didn't, feel 100% behind just because they were better than the other guy. Um, and so I was like, what if, <laughs> what if somebody ran that I didn't feel like was a compromise? And um, then it was, what if that was me? I guess, um, I guess what I get caught up on there, though, is like, that sounds like a really good argument to run third party. Like, I have been pretty much cornered into running for all these people I thought were the lesser of two evils or, like, not as bad as the other person. It, I don't agree with, like, this established kind of, like, large machinery and a lot of the things that it brings to fruition. I don't like the way, like, a lot of it's, you know, a back-scratching kind of, like, favoritism. Like... All of those point to me, like, why would you then be like, I'm going to sign up to change this thing from inside rather than, like, I'm going to rally all the people who are pissed off about it and go form something new. Like, it sounds like a lot of what you're running on is, like, you want to change the process pretty dramatically. And, like, I'm here for that for sure. But, like, it's wouldn't it be easier to, like, draft a new process on, like, a I guess a, a less uh, established party, whether that's, you know, a green or a, you know, a rainbow party or a libertarian party or whatever, you know, whatever platform you may co-opt the, the 6% of just to have the, the mechanics in place. So it might be, but the thing is the Democrats are using the language of being the party of social justice. They have co-opted this kind of, yeah, but that's um, kind of the problem, right? If you use the language, but you're not that party, then that becomes problematic. I'm not saying that's you, but I'm saying that like the party generally is that's part of their issue. And so I'm kind of here to be like, hey, guys, like, you can say this all you want, but if you're not using your values, like, you know, I'm challenging them to use the values. That's fair. That was the speech that I gave with the lobster bake was basically like, hey, so we all say that we share these values. How about we use them? (laughs) Um, And that's kind of, I mean, I feel like a lot of people who are in the Democratic Party who are there, you know, either kind of by default or because, you know, it seems like the right party, even if it's not 100% on on point all the time um they want the party to be that but don't know how to get it there and so i'm kind of i mean when i decided to run democrat it was like well you know part of it was how do i get access to a lot of people who want better from the team that calls themselves social justice and how do i make the team that says they're social justice like actually be social justice (laughs) yeah it's running from the inside Um, and it's using structures in place and people who feel left out within those structures and like kind of finding them. Um, do you, do you mind if I follow up on that then? I'm curious when, when was like the first time, like you felt like I am a Democrat? Like, when did you make that decision? Was that like the first time you vote, you voted for a Democrat and you're like, I'm signing up for the Democrat party. Like I'm on board from here. Or is this something like you kind of decided on, uh, you know, uh, you were unaffiliated, maybe like coming up until now and then had to make a decision, obviously, if you were going to run. 
like when I turned 18, I registered Democrat because uh, I hated, what was it, George W. Bush? Yeah. Uh, I think was that was where we were. Um, sure do miss him now, don't we? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Love that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I so it just it seemed like the thing to do with my 18-year-old political analysis, right? That's fair. And then um, I think I was independent when I first moved to Maine. Um because I was angry about, I think, the National Defense Authorization Act in 2012. Mm. Um, but I was still voting mostly Democrats because it seemed like the lesser of two evils. Mm. And then I registered Democrat in advance of the 2016 primary because I was like, uh, yeah, no, like, I want to vote in the primary for Bernie. Like, this sounds like a great idea. Um, so I registered Democrat in Maine at that time. Um, and, you know, I had been independent, but I kept working for democratic candidates and working on and with democratic campaigns you know would i like to see a more robust multi-party system i would but that's not where we are right now and when it comes to resources and support and um and coalition Mm. i think um working from within that structure to make that structure what they say they are um is the most viable option i could think of I, I mean, I tend to agree with you. I consider myself a, a progressive pragmatist, if you will. Uh, so, you know, work, working from the inside to make the party what it's supposed to be when what it always says it's going to be is probably the best way to do that. I, uh, I find people in the, the far left fringes, you know, the, the, the Bernie bros of which I'm a, a proud member, but not always a, a, a proud member <laughs> when I see others' behaviors are very much in that camp of like burn it all down and restart it. And it's like, hey, man, somebody's got to fight the fight from the inside. So I, I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, I guess I want to wrap up here before we get to, to random people on a lightning round at the end and ask you, uh, I guess, my favorite question of getting to do this for a living. What is your favorite part about being a politician now and, like, doing this for a living? Like, what's been your favorite moment? What's been your favorite part of getting a chance to do this? Oh, that's a tough call. Uh, I can narrow it down to three. Okay. I'll take three. Um, I tell stories for a living. Uh, you want to give me three stories, I'll take three stories. <laughs> I mean, they're just three ideas mostly, but like one is um, having time where it's actually my job to think through concepts and structures and why things are what they are and how we can do them differently. Like, that's actually part of what I'm supposed to be doing with my time. It's not a distraction. It's not like, it's not a sidetrack. Like, I'm actually supposed to be doing that. And that feels really gratifying to me. Um, Another is traveling Maine, like having an excuse Mm. or reason, like a you know, it's actually my job to travel the state of Maine and um, not a job, not a job that I pay, get paid for, but it's like, it's my weird hobby that I'm supposed to be doing. It, it's your <laughs> project. Devoting time it, to this it. is your hustle. <laughs> like I, I'm here to represent yeah. you. Yeah. So like, I get to go and see all the parts of Maine that I hadn't gotten to see before and kind of hand on hand with that is um, the number of people that I'm getting to meet who are involved in the work and who are engaged and active and excited about like, fighting this fight like it's every time I meet with a new group my heart gets a little bit bigger because I'm just I um it's so exciting to see how many people around the state um care so much about our state and our community and our country and our world and who are like working on ways to make it better hope is not dead (laughs) um and uh and seeing people who care about that uh has been um really restorative for me in a lot of ways because I think when I decided to run I was in a place where um 
you know, it was very much a, do we burn the whole thing down or do we try to fix it? And this is kind of like my, well, we only have so many chances left to try and fix it. So I'm going to jump in full force and do everything I can. Um, and I'm kind of figuring out what everything I can actually looks like in practice. Um, so that's, I guess that's a bonus number four, um, really learning what my capacity is, um, and, uh, and pushing that limit and, um, and trying to figure out, you know, how far I can go, uh, with this heart and this mind and these ideas in mind, um, and how many people I can, um, I can rally and also how many people I can learn from. Like it's a, it's a big growth period. Well, I will say my favorite part so far about this season where I'm interviewing candidates uh, has been the exceptional amount of hope given to me by each person I've interviewed because it seems to be everybody's favorite part of running a campaign is like, hey, like I've gone places I've never been before. I found parts of where I live that I didn't understand were so beautiful or had such type of people that I've never had a chance to interact with or taste the culture of or whatever that moment may be, kind of like that restorative hope, that belief that like, hey, like, humans are pretty good and America is a pretty exceptional place. And like, if we were all just like five to 10% better, like we'd be pretty fucking rad. <laughs> uh, that seems to be yeah. like the general takeaway from running from office. So I, I'm glad that has been your experience as well. Uh, we're going to take a quick short break here and we're going to be right back for our lightning round, random people. And then I will send you back to your merry life. Uh, Woo. Woo. <laughs> Who the fuck are these people? Shut up. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Internet. Are you ready? It's time for random people. Alright, we are back and we're going to play Random People, my favorite segment of this podcast. For those of you who are new listening at home, who haven't listened to any of our other episodes, shame on you. Go back, listen to some other episodes. This is a really good podcast. I don't know what you were doing. However, if this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, Random People is our fun little lightning round we do at the end of every podcast. The way this works is we have a hundred different types of people here, uh, pretty much for the purpose of we get to talk to a lot of different cool people, a lot of different representations of people, but we don't get to talk to every type of person. Uh, so we try to make up for that a little bit by compiling the list of all the different types of random people we're never going to get to speak to, or at least not anytime soon, and asking the people we have on to talk about them instead. Uh, so out of those hundred, Bree is going to give me three numbers, one through a hundred. I'm going to give them the people who correspond to those numbers, and then they're going to tell me what they think of those people. So without much further ado, Bree, what are your three numbers? Nine thirty and ninety nine. Nine thirty, ninety nine. I don't know what's up with nines and politicians, uh, but the last politician I interviewed, uh, Brianna Wu, who is running for uh, U.S. House in uh, Massachusetts eight, she uh, picked, I believe, it was nine, nineteen, and ninety nine. Uh, luckily, I shuffled huh. the I shuffled the list every time, so it's a, a different nine thirty nine and ninety nine, but a very common theme nonetheless. 
All right, uh, we're going to queue up 30 seconds here on the clock. We'll, do you want to start with 9 or 99? Which end do you want to start with? Let's start with 9. We'll start with 9. Okay, 30 seconds on the clock. Tell me the first three things that pop into your head about executives. Um, rich, uh, well-dressed, um, uh, uh, wingtip shoes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. No, we got it in there. I was going to say you had five seconds left. I was like, oh, we might hit the beeper, but no, we're right there. All right. Not bad. Uh, turns out if I get rich, apparently I can be an executive in your eyes. I'm, I'm into it. Uh, I'm well dressed. I got a bunch of wingtips. Uh, <laughs> scrolling hey, down to 39. Uh, our second choice are, hold on, let me reset my 30 seconds here. Uh, community organizers. Mm. Overworked, um, <laughs> uh, idealistic, um, passionate. All right, awesome. Uh, and last but not least, 99 is the easiest to find because I just scrolled to the bottom of the list. Uh, ooh, this is a fun one. Uh, we didn't get to talk about religion at all, so 30 seconds on the clock. Tell me the first three things that pop in your head when you hear clergy. Hmm, philosophical. Um, reflective, um, uh, five seconds. Introverted. Oh, okay. That's not bad. I like that. All right. Not bad. You did pretty good at this. I, I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, this is my favorite segment of this entire show, but there are a lot of people who make this fucking painful for me. Uh, you did better than this. <laughs> Uh, all right. The way this works, I get one follow-up question on each of these. I'm going to, pro uh, yeah, I'll start, I'll start where we finished with clergy. Uh, I guess we didn't get a chance to talk about this. So I'm just curious. Are you, are you a religious person of any faith is like, what role does faith play in your life? Um, I am a recovering Catholic. <laughs> um, As all the Irish are. Yeah, I, I was raised Catholic, but I'm not Catholic. Um, I would call myself spiritual, but not religious. Okay, cool. Um, I have practices which I feel like connect me with, you know, a higher power or the universe or the earth or, you know, energy, life force, what have you. But I'm not, you know, I don't like go to church. I don't have like a faith community or like a priest or anything. I, uh, I always joke my faith community is my pickup soccer league. So I, me and you are, are well aligned there. I, I have my prayers. I have my religion. <laughs> and I, I kind of keep all that to myself. And as far as it goes for like the gathering and, you know, the, the Sunday ritual, like, yeah, that's what I have sports for. Uh, my second one I was curious about is community organizing. So obviously you've done a fair amount of community organizing. Uh, a lot of your job is community organizing if you become a Senate member and kind of getting people behind things and rallying people behind things. What is the cause you'd like most to see your community organized behind? My number one top issue, I mean, right now it's, it's democracy. It's putting, mm. putting the people back in the democratic process, like putting democracy back in the hands of the people. Um, it's basically reclaiming our role in decision-making. Um, so that's, that's my whole central theme, um, getting people engaged and, and ready to, to reclaim our say. Um, in that case, that transitions nicely to follow-up number three, which would be for me, what do you, what do you I guess, think a, a good executive is? 
because obviously, like, we're, we're voting in an executive of the country shortly. Executive leadership has a lot to do with kind of how we've gotten here as far as, like, the broken democracy we live in. And so what do you think, like, a good, like, what is good executive leadership in your eyes? Yeah, see, that's not where my brain went when you said the word executive. My brain went to, like, I don't know why it was, like, some Leonardo DiCaprio dude in an office with, like, enormous windows and, like, really nice shoes. I don't... I mean, like, in fairness, that's what a lot of those dudes are. <laughs> I've, I've worked with a lot of executives in my life. It's it's a lot of wingtip um, shoes and nice suits. I, you're not far off. Um, but no, I think a good executive, um, I don't remember where this quote comes from, but I think a good leader doesn't ask anyone to work harder than they're willing to work. Um, you know, a good leader is in the trenches with, with the people they're leading. Um a good leader is is willing to go every bit as far as they're asking anyone else to go. Um, a good leader has their finger on the pulse of what's actually happening in their organization um, and, and knows who they're leading. They're not just kind of leading from the top, but they're leading from, you know, from inside. Um, and, uh, and a good leader doesn't leave people behind um a good leader you know i'm thinking about a flock now for some reason i have this kind of like you know shepherd image in my head i think it's because you were talking about clergy but like you don't you don't leave the the sheep out behind the the pack to die you know to get picked up by the wolf you try and keep everybody uh keep everybody with you i want to wrap up with a final question that i ask everybody uh i just find it important and helpful in my own marketing if nothing else who do you want to hear this episode like who do you want to hear your story who do you want to know like what you're doing like you're doing a lot of cool revolutionary stuff you're doing a lot of stuff that others might be unsettled by or disagree with uh who do you hope kind of hears this and stumbles across this and like gets to know your story through the show um first and foremost other queer people who think they can't run into our office because of who they are um, you know, like I, we've never had a trans person in the house or the Senate and, um, I want more trans people to run. So, um, folks who are like, you know, my life is too weird for me to run for office. Like they'll hear the first part of this and be like, Oh, never mind. Like this, <laughs> this black job can run for office. <laughs> like then I guess I can too. So those folks, but also people who have felt politically disenfranchised and maybe even like Trump voters who voted that way because they felt politically disenfranchised. It felt like they didn't have a voice and were like, Oh, okay. Like maybe even those, you know, those lawyers on the, <laughs> those leftist lawyers on the East coast, like maybe, maybe they care about what I think. <laughs> um, well, uh, I will say then to all the queer political people out there considering running for office, all the people who are politically disenfranchised and feel hopeless, for the first time in this show's history, to all the Trump voters out there, to all the executives, the community organizers, the clergy, and to everybody else, because in my opinion, obviously everyone in the world listens to the Those People podcast, please be sure to check out Brie Kidman's campaign. It is pretty cool, it is pretty awesome, and even if you disagree with it, it is pretty revolutionary and pretty different, so it is definitely worth taking a look at. Uh, obviously, uh, you got two hours of content here to listen to, engage your own feelings of how you feel about them as a person uh but i'm a fan i hope you go check them out where can people find you on the internet if they want to know more about you other than all of the things that we just told them um so i'm on twitter at b-e-k-a-y number four main um or no bk for me um so b-e-k-a-y number four m-e is my twitter that's also my facebook handle 
Um, so if you wanted to find me there as well. And my website, um, I think you can also use D-E-K-Y for Maine or BreeKidman.com. Um, there's a lot of domains that direct the same thing. <laughs> That's proper branding, man. That's the way to do it. I am bad at technology um, in terms of like web domains and stuff, but uh, a friend put it together in a way that I think has is working. Um, so that's, yeah, but I'm on Twitter kind of a lot. I'm on Facebook, uh, so, so, and my website is there if you want more in-depth information, but also people can just like shoot me an email at B-E-K-A-Y for Senate at gmail.com. And it might take me a couple of days, but I'll get back to them. Awesome. Like I'm trying to do the opposite of, uh, of what the person in the seat does now. So like, I, I want to hear what you think. And I, even if it takes me a little bit of time, I will respond to it. Well, if you're listening out there, especially if you happen to live in the state of Maine, uh, please get in touch with Brie because, like they said, they will actually get back in touch with you and you can make real political change, which is something that is increasingly more difficult to do. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and thank you for covering out a couple hours to do this. And uh, thank you to everybody out there supporting the show, obviously. Uh, Till next time, I'm Mitch Gaines. This was Brie Kidman. We are all those people and have a lovely afternoon. Thanks for having me. quick housekeeping notes here after the episode if you enjoyed the episode please 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 rate and review the show wherever you listen really helps other people find the show and that's sort of essential to us being able to do a second season if you really love the episode or you just want to support the show you can also buy one of our political people t-shirts or some of our other merch available on our merch page at mitchgains.com if you have feedback for the show i'm all ears my twitter dms are always open but you can also email me at mitchgains at gmail.com prefer speaking to writing Me too, that's why I started a podcast. You can leave us a voice message if you prefer at the link in the show notes here. Just note that your feedback, questions, and opinions may be used in a future episode. I want to give a special thanks to East Boston Public Library for allowing us to record several of our episodes on location there. Make sure you thank and hug your local librarian. Special thanks also to Phil Elam of the Justice Boys and Amy Bezunartea, hopefully I got that right, for our intro and our outro music respectively. Both songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post links in the show notes as to where you can find them. Lastly, and most especially perhaps, 
I want to give a special thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Scheitlin, without whom, and I mean this quite literally, none of this would be possible. I also want to give a final thanks to all those people who have been supporting this project from its earliest days, way before we released, including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Nicole Hodnett, Shelbo the God, and countless others that I'm missing here. I'm Mitch Gaines, and thank you as always for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people.